Let's open our Bibles to the book of Haggai, chapter 2, where Paul is reading for us. Our text is verses 4 through 9, and I've entitled the morning's message, The Flood, the Fire, and the Temple. That should be temples, plural. Verse 4, Haggai, chapter 2. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. For I am with you, says the Lord God of hosts, according to the word that I have coveted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. As we look at um, this short, one of the shortest ones in the Bible, one of two, uh, Haggai is a prophet Uh, And his prophecy is to the restored remnant who returned to Jerusalem. Jeremiah primarily was warning about them going into captivity. They did go into captivity for 70 years. When they were allowed to come back, um, this would have been during Nehemiah's time and Ezra's time, when they were allowed to come back, less than 50,000 came. And... um, Haggai here, his ministry is to encourage them, in particular, verse 4, this guy named Zerubbabel, who's going to be an instrument to stir up the people and to get them. They had come from Babylon, one of the places called the seven wonders of the ancient world that had to be beautiful. And they came back to a city that was completely destroyed. And they were discouraged. And so now the job is to encourage them to let's rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. Um, the, the minor prophets primarily deal with these issues. And the two are that if you don't, God's going to do what he did in taking you into captivity. Judgment, much of it is a warning of judgment. We find an example of that in the book we just studied in Zephaniah, which is only three chapters long. The first three chapters deal with the judgment of the whole world. Uh, From verses 4 through the rest of the first chapter, it talks about why God is going to judge. And all the way up to chapter 3, looking at verse 8, um, one of the things that we want to glean as we study God's word is there's places where there's double prophecies. And this, this happens to be one of them. Because in chapter 3, in verse 8 of, of um, Zephaniah, it's not just talking about a local judgment to Jerusalem. And most of chapter 2 are the surrounding nations of um, Edom and Ammon, Jerusalem, Philistia, So it's a general local judgment, but in verse 8, it says, Therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I raise up for plunder 
My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of my kingdom to pour out my indignation. This clearly is a reference to the Great Tribulation. It's one of the titles uh, that we use for the Tribulation period. All my fierce anger and the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Now, almost without exception, when he's dealing and telling them and pleading with them through the prophets to return, at the same time, at the end of every one of the minor prophets, we have in chapter 3 of Zephaniah the promise of the restoration of the kingdom age. And we're going to look at it through a series of temples that were built. Six of them are mentioned in the scriptures. But just to read one verse of um, ending on a high note, we find in verse 14 of chapter 3, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, sing, O Israel, be glad, and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, for the Lord has taken away your judgment. He has cast out your enemy. And the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. These are kingdom millennial promises. So with judgment, there's always the hope that he wants to give the people that um, when all is said and done, yes, he's going to deal with his people. In the same way it says in Hebrews chapter 12, which father doesn't discipline his son? for correction when he does something wrong. How much more your heavenly father will correct um, us. And we're told to judge ourselves. We just took communion this morning. When what Paul was reading, it says, let a man examine himself uh, before he partakes of communion, lest we sin. So we can either examine ourselves and think of my week, and I go, Lord, I blew it here, here, and here. Please forgive me. Get my heart right. Now I can take communion. But if I blow it off and pretend like uh, nothing was wrong and and did partake, well, then the Lord will take me to the woodshed in his own way. What father wouldn't? So we we find here the warning, a judgment, but also, you know, the old saying, son, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. (laughs) And uh, it's not a pleasant thing to discipline, but because we're human and we have feet of clay, God has to deal with us in the same way they dealt with Israel. Good place for an amen. So um, these are the major points of the the prophets, but it's always for our best. And the the parents tell you this, son or daughter, I'm doing this because this is, you're doing wrong, and I'm going to show you this is the right way to do it. Psalm 110 verse 6 says, he will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. These are clearly tribulation scriptures, and um, it leads us to our text this morning. I want to draw your attention to verse 6 of Haggai, where it just deals with a judgment that happened once before, and one that's going to happen in the future. So let's go back to Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it's a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. 
Well, if it's once more, there's something being implied here. And what's being implied is that God judged the whole world, not just Jerusalem, not just the surrounding areas, but the entire world. And of course, I am talking about the flood. Now, before I take you back to Genesis 7, here the prophet is clearly saying that he's going to judge again. So I'm going to have you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 before I take you to Genesis. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3 and we'll read the first seven verses about the last days. I believe we're living in the days of Noah. I believe we're living in the last days. And I could spend the rest of the day up here, and you you know I could, don't you? (laughs) Explaining why I believe that. But in verse 1, there will be this mockery in the last days about what I'm about to say. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the command of us, the apostles of our Lord Jesus. Well, one of the holy prophets he's talking about is Haggai, because Haggai said he's going to shake the earth once more implying it was shaken once earlier, the whole earth. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust. And they'll say, where is the promise of his coming? Sarcastically. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as it was from the beginning. Do you know this was the same attitude? On our Wednesday night study, I touched on this verse. God doesn't see, God doesn't care, and God's not going to do nothing. That was the prevailing attitude. And that's what's being said here. Um, as we talk about the rapture of the church, an event that's never happened. And so the sarcasm is, uh, where's your Jesus? And um, I thought you uh, were going to be uh, removed here. But everything continues. Every, every day is the same. Uh, as they were from the beginning of the creation. And then he says this. But they willfully forget. So now they're exercising their free will to forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded by water. The thing is here, they willfully forget it. They don't want to believe that God would bring judgment on the entire world. But the heavens and the earth, which are now kept, are kept in store by the same word, reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Now we're going to come back to this at the end of the study, but I want to go to Genesis 7, to the flood. And as I'm turning, I'm going to have a picture of Noah's Ark actually put up on the screen. They have rebuilt it to scale you got to go to Kentucky to see it. And that's the outside of it. This would be a view of the inside of it. And it's incredible. This is on my bucket list. I want to see Noah's Ark. So if you look at chapter 7, 
Let me draw your attention to verse 15. Um, yeah. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, all the flesh which were in the, the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And notice this, because I'm going to come back to it, make a point of it. The Lord shut the door. The Lord shut them in. Now the flood was on the earth for 40 uh, days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And the waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth. From all the high hills under the whole heaven were opened. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. All flesh died that moved on the earth. The birds, cattle, beasts, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, and all that was on dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which are on the face of the ground, both man, cattle, creeping things, birds of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Um, If you talk about a worldwide flood today in any university, uh, you will be scoffed. That's why it says there will be scoffers in the last days. Willfully choosing to not acknowledge that such an event took place. All right, commercial time. In May, we are going to the Grand Canyon with Russ Miller. Um, We have roughly about 30 people right now. And um, I know that this is going to happen. But what Russ needs from us is to know so that he can make reservations for the hotel. So if you're thinking about it, or if your name's out there and you haven't sent your money in yet, you have to deal directly with Russ. It goes straight to him. Then he has a set number. We'll be going with Calvary Chapel Cypress with uh, Pastor Chris and his group. And we had a ball last time we, we went. But you can't go to the Grand Canyon and come away with not theology that the Bible says it was a worldwide flood, but scientific proof. What, what Russ does is he deals with the science and the facts of only a worldwide flood could have created the Grand Canyon. And I'll just throw that out there for now. End of commercial, back to Bible study. <laughs> okay? But if you're thinking about going, I've been there. It's abs- everybody should see the Grand Canyon anyway. And, you know, I know sometimes it's tough with, with the money issues, but um, I, hope you, I, hope you can, I hope you can take it in. I want to quote Hebrews 10 where it says, Behold, I have come, and the volume of the book is written of me to do your will, O God. In other words, this verse is saying that from Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible is about Jesus. From Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God's. Elohim, plural. 
created the heavens and the earth. So there you have the Father and the Son. And then it says the Spirit of God brooded over the water. You have the Trinity. You get to Genesis one twenty six, and it says, Let us, plural, make God in our image. So you have the Trinity there. So you have Jesus, and his first prophecy is in Genesis uh, 3.15, where it talks about uh, uh, the serpent um, bruising him, but he will crush the serpent's head. That's the reference to Jesus Christ destroying the works of the enemy. What's your point? The Bible's about Jesus. Unfortunately, today in a lot of churches, when they go to church, they want you to think the Bible's about you. Well, hear how much the Bible is about you. You are a sinner. Period. Now let's talk more about Jesus. Okay? The volume of the book is not about you. God loves you. And he paid a great price to purchase you. But the Holy Spirit is a perfect gentleman. And he will never force your will. Whosoever. And he knocks at the door. He doesn't beat the door down. He wants to be invited in. He wants you to understand he loves you. And he, the precious, most precious commodity on this planet is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we did when we remembered that this morning in communion. Another good place for a man. So it's all about Jesus. It's not all about you. So look out for churches that are trying to tell you it's all about you. I mean, Rick Warren's line in The Purpose Driven Life, the first sentence says, this book is not about you. That's the first sentence. And then the rest of the book is all about you. I know I'm being a little facetious here, but it's, it's true. And people gravitate and like to hear things that are going to better my life or whatever. What will better your life is when you study God's word chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and let his Holy Spirit work in you, working that sanctifying process where you become more like him and not more like you. So it's not my kingdom come, it's thy kingdom come. Back to the study. I believe that Jesus and Noah's Ark is a picture of salvation and a picture of Jesus himself. You say, how so? Well, we have the, uh, um, if you turn back one page to chapter 6, verse 8, we read, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He said, I'm going to destroy all the world, but they have but. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Question. Was Noah perfect? No. Was his family perfect? No. But what did he find? He found grace. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says we are saved by grace through faith. So I see Noah as a type of the church. And he's going to get saved. He was told that he was um, uh, faithful in his generation. For 120 years, while he's building a boat out in the middle of, I'm from Wisconsin, I didn't say that right. He was out in the middle of the desert building a boat, and people had to be watching him. And what are you doing? I'm building a boat. What for? 
Well, God's going to judge the earth, and, and this is the way he's going to save us out of it. You want in? And you go, you crazy old man. There's no water out here. Well, it's going to rain. Well, what's rain? You see, there was no rain until the flood. And it wasn't just from above. It says the fountains of the deep um, is what caused the worldwide flood. But they scoffed. And what does it say in Second Peter? And we're living in the days of Noah. In the last days, there will be scoffers who will say, where is the sign of his coming? So now, Noah's ark is the only means of salvation. Unless you're on that boat and the door is shut after the last one is in, you're not going to be saved. So the ark becomes a type of Jesus. Are you sure, Dwight? Hear me out. So at this point, I want to go to the verse 16 where it says, So they entered male and female, and they went in, and the Lord shut them in. So who closed the door? The Lord. All right, we're going to come back here, but I want you to turn, keep your finger here, and just go to Matthew chapter 25 very quickly. We've been here a couple times. It's the parable of the ten virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish. Five had oil in their lamps, five did not. The ones who didn't have it had to go shopping. And while they were shopping, the Lord came to the the wise ones that were waiting. And it says in verse 10, while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And what does it say? And the door was shut. And when I read that, and I read it from Genesis, I do not believe that is a coincidence for one second. And afterwards, the other virgins came, Lord, Lord, open to us. And answered and said, surely, I don't know you. Watch therefore. What do you suppose happened when the fountains of the deep blew up. And all of a sudden, I believe there was a canopy. It was one of the reasons that there was longevity of life, keeping out the ultraviolet rays. All that was gone. And it all came down at once. I wonder if there was any knocking at the door of Noah's Ark. People swimming as fast as they could. Let us in, let us in, open up, open up. No. Noah has been telling you for 120 years judgment was coming, and you scoffed at him. And today we're telling people we're living in the days of Noah, and the Lord is going to come for his church, and he's going to rapture us out of here. Well, what do you mean? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. That's called scoffing, by the way. And, um, yeah, God's going to bring judgment but he's going to take his church out. Well, what happened in the days of Noah? Well, once everybody was in and the door was shut, they went up. And uh, they were there until judgment was done. Then what happened? They came down. Then what did they do? They started a brand new world with the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Brand new beginning. What's about to happen? We see the stage set for the great tribulation. It's here, right around the corner. 
And why it hasn't happened yet is God's long-suffering and patience. He's waiting for more people to get saved so they don't have to go through this period of time. But let's look at the rapture. What is it? Well, we're changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And what happens? We go up to meet the Lord in the air. What happens while we're up? The great tribulation takes place. What happens after the great tribulation? Jesus comes back to earth with his church. Then what happens? Well, there's a millennial age, and there's a brand new earth with no curse on it. The parallels are there. Go back to Genesis 7. And we, we uh, left off with verse 17. And we find, oh, let's pick up verse 23. So the Lord destroyed all living things. Oh, we read that part. I want to get down to um, what I think makes it clear that uh, the Ark of Noah is a type of Jesus Christ. Look at verse chapter 8. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord remembered Noah and every living thing. And if you go down to verse 4, it says, The Ark rested. Okay, the Ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. But then it gives us the date. It happened on the seventh, uh, the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. So I have to ask myself, why do we need to know the day that Noah's Ark landed on the mountains of Ararat? And what is the 17th of Nisan anyway? Well, it's... Um, three days after the 14th of Nisan. And you say, so what's up with that? Well, remember we were just reading in, in uh, John 2 that Jesus came up to Jerusalem for the Passover? He was the fulfillment. He was the Passover lamb. And he was a type. And Passover, and at that time, happened to be the 14th of Nisan. It's when they would have been inspecting a lamb without blemish. Just like Pontius Pilate inspected Jesus four times, and four times he comes out and says, I've checked this guy out, and there's no, there's no blemish in him. He's done nothing wrong. So he's being inspected. When? On the day that they would have been offering the Passover, the 14th of Nisan. So, did anything of any significance happen three days later on the 17th of Nisan? Oh yeah, we call it Easter. But it was Resurrection Sunday. So now you're telling me that if the ark is a type of Jesus Christ, only one door, and um, there's only one way that Noah could be saved in the ark and that it comes back to planet earth after judgment and it just happens to come to rest on the 17th of Nisan. I say, what an amazing coincidence that is. No coincidence. You know that the Lord says for heaven and earth will pass away, but he says for the countless ages to come, he's going to be revealing just how deep this book is.
We're just scratching the surface. I'm confident. And I can't wait to hear one of the Lord's studies where he really opens it up for us. All right. Let's um, go back. We're on the verge, I believe, as it says, in the days of Noah. And the Lord predicted in Matthew 24 the great tribulation. I'll just quote two verses. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 21 and 22. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days are shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days would be shortened. So the Bible prophesies in the book of Haggai, Zephaniah, all the prophets, the minor prophets, that God will judge the whole world. And as we just read in Haggai, it says, yet once more. All right, there's the implication. When the first time, the flood, it happened. And there's scientific facts. And don't let any college professor tell you any otherwise that all this happened over millions of years. No, the earth is 6,000 years old. And by the way, the sun and the moon wasn't created till the earth was already made. The earth was made first. Then came the sun and the moon. Read it carefully. It'll blow your mind. I can get sidetracked in that too, but I better not. Now, as we talk about the temple, in John 2, they didn't get it. They said, this temple here has been 46 years in the making. I'm going to go through the temples this morning because it was a place designated where God would be worshipped. The first temple we'll put up on the screen is called the Wilderness Temple. And God gave instructions to Moses exactly how it should be built, its dimensions. Um, For 40 years of wandering, uh, the Spirit of God at nighttime, it was a, a fiery cloud. It kept them warm because it's cold in the desert. And in the daytime, it was a cloud that sheltered them from the sun. And for 40 years, we have the wilderness temple. When that cloud began to move, everybody broke camp. And when the cloud stopped, they stopped. And that went on for 40 years. So that was the first temple. The second temple, uh, it was in Shiloh for many, many years. And David's desire was to build a temple for the Lord. He felt guilty. He looked at his house and he says, I live in this mansion of cedar, and the Ark of the Covenant is in this tent, in this cave, and they were keeping it. And I don't feel right about that. And um, he's talking to Samuel about it. I think it was Samuel. And uh, Samuel says, go for it. Do what's in your heart. And as he's going home, the Lord taps a prophet on the shoulder and says, I didn't say you could do that. You didn't talk to me about that. You got to go back and tell David he can't do it. David was a warrior's warrior. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. He's got too much blood on his hands to build my temple. So tell him the bad news, but give him some good news too. 
Bad news, David, you can't build the temple. Good news, I'm going to let your son do it. So Solomon was the one. David gathered all the resources, but only after uh, Solomon was king was the temple built, and we call it Solomon's Temple, and we have a picture uh, of it put up there. That would have been the second one. Well, we know that uh, most of uh, the prophets are like uh, Jeremiah's warning, get back to the Lord or he'll take you into captivity and you're going to be there for 70 years. And that's exactly what happened. When Nebuchadnezzar came down, eventually Solomon's temple was destroyed. The date was the 9th of Av. That's going to come up again, so remember that. Now, after the 70 years, now we're getting to the period of time with the book of Haggai and uh, Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra. It's a period of time that they've come back from Babylon, but only about 50,000 of them. And they begin to build what's called Zerubbabel's temple. And remember um, our text here, verse 4 Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord speaking to Zerubbabel. And he encourages him to get the people back to work. So between him and Ezra, uh, we find that during this period of time, they go back. If, If you turn to the book of Esther, let me give you a moment to get to it. And let's look. Um, at uh, chapter 6, verse 13. Ezra is back um, by Esther and Nehemiah. Ezra is right before Nehemiah, to help, if that will help us, right after Second Chronicles. Chapter 6, and we read, let's pick it up in verse 14, back in the book of Ezra. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai. And the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Ido, and they built and finished it according to the command of the Lord. And there was one more that I thought I had back here. And we have Haggai as one that is prophesying. And also, along with that, would have been Zerubbabel. That would have been the third temple. First, the wilderness and Solomon, and now Zerubbabel's. Now, the problem with Zerubbabel's is they were all excited about it. That is, except for the old-timers. And when the old-timers saw the foundation being laid, well, the young guys rejoiced. They were praising the Lord, singing songs, and they were happy, clappy. But the old men who had seen the original Solomon's temple, they wept, and they said, this is no temple. So we go from a temple that was inferior in appearance to now King Herod's time. King Herod was not Jewish, He was either an Ammonite or Edomite, I forget which. But he wanted to please them. And so he starts this building project, 
and this is Herod's temple. And he greatly enlarged it. And so when we read in John 2, when Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. They said, you're crazy. We've been working on this for 46 years. And um, um, we we were just there. That temple was also destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, just like the Lord said it would be. He prophesied. Uh, they were commenting on this temple here, how beautiful it was. And he says, I'll tell you, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. And just coming back from Israel, over the years, they're doing more excavating and more things are being revealed. And in the last, say, 10 years, they finally got down to the ground level of the original streets during the time when this would have happened. And what they found were these huge stones. I mean, six by six, easy. And they were laying right in the very spot where the Romans would have pushed them over, and they haven't been touched since 70 AD. And just over time, the rubble filled in and so on and so forth. So this temple was also destroyed on the 9th of Av. Of course, that's just a coincidence, right? (laughs) All right, so now we have Herod's temple. We have not had a temple in Jerusalem. This presents a problem for the Jewish people. And here's why. The scriptures tell us without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins. Now, what would happen on Passover? Jesus was there for the Passover, right? And when John the Baptist first saw Jesus, he says, there he is. There's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And what what happened with um, the destruction of this temple on 70 AD, there hasn't been one. So now you're Jew and... It's Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, when the high priest and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and there he would make atonement for the sins of the people. So we have a problem. Well, what's the problem? We don't have a temple. We don't have a high priest. We don't have on Yom Kippur somebody to go in and have shed blood so that from a Jewish perspective, they could have their sins forgiven. I asked him about that. I said, you need blood. And I said, well, you know, we, um, we don't work on that day, and we make our countenance sad. We think about our sins, and um, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you're avoiding the question. <laughs> While we were in Israel, we visited the Temple Mount Institute, Rabbi Richmond has been working on it for over 30 years. They already have the menorah. They already have all the garments for the high priests, including, including the, the breastplates, golden crown. The, the, uh, the menorah, five feet tall, plated with um, gold that is into the millions of dollars, and complete preparations and plans are being made. Over 50% of the population in Jerusalem wants to see a temple. And according to Daniel 9, verse 27, there will be a temple. 
Both Jesus and Paul and John and Daniel said there will be a temple that I call the Tribulation Temple. And um, this picture that we're going to put up actually comes from the Temple Mount Institute, the way that they think it should be built. That We were in that building, and that's the picture that we got off line from the Temple Mount Institute. Daniel tells us that there's going to be a covenant made for seven years with Israel. Part of that covenant is going to be that Israel gets to rebuild their temple. And then it says in the middle of the week, he's going to break his covenant, and um, he's going to put a statue of himself up. I'm quoting now 2 Thessalonians 3 and 4. Um, He's talking about the man of sin, the Antichrist. When he comes, he exalts himself above all that is called God, that he is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Jesus spoke of this. Paul spoke of this. So it has to happen. Uh, God's word has to come to pass. This temple will be be destroyed also at the end of the Great Tribulation period, which brings us to our final one that I'll put up on the screen, which is called the Millennial Temple. But I need you to turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 41. Ezekiel 41. As long as we're this close to 37 and 38, let me remind you where we are right now. Both 36 and 37 um, are two chapters that talk about Israel coming back once again into the land. In the synagogue in Masada, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, when they discovered the synagogue in a scroll room, they found under a rock a scroll opened. It was opened to Ezekiel chapter 36. Those 900 on Masada died. But they left a message behind. Storerooms full of grain and corn. Big containers full of wine. Hundreds of thousands of gallons of water in the reservoir. They were proving that they could have lasted them out if, if they had to. And when they came into the synagogue they found Ezekiel chapter 36 open. Ezekiel chapter 36 is a promise that someday they would come back into the land. They died with hope. And um, uh, that was discovered. 36 and 37, you can just go, go like this. Check it off. Bible prophecy fulfilled. Next year will be the 70th anniversary of Israel being a nation. 19, May 14th, 1948, next year's 2018, that's 70 years. And to me, 70 is an interesting number. I don't know about you. And so they're expecting a lot of tourists. We are, by the way, we already got the date set because we know it's going to be packed. The itinerary is complete. I'm waiting to finalize it with my friend Joyce uh, to get confirmation. So just so you know, Lord willing, we're going to Israel. I always like to to say, we're going to Israel, but I know better because the rapture could happen in between. <laughs> so, Lord willing, 
we're going to Israel next year. So we find that um, the temple that we call the Tribulation Temple will be destroyed. And the last one, if you're in um, uh, Ezekiel, now go to chapter 40. 38 and 39, of course, is the, the war that will take place. Fifty-four times in the book of Ezekiel it says, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. What happens is the Lord is going to do things that he hasn't done since he destroyed Egypt. Miraculous signs. God himself is going to take out um, those in, um, in in that battle before the millennial kingdom can can begin. So in chapter 40, all the way through 48, there's no way that I have uh, the time to take you through it because chapter 41, all 26 verses, is just about the intricate detail. If you'll put a picture of the Millennial Temple up, please. Look at the detail. So all of the measurements in here how to carve the faces of the cherubim, the measurements for the windows. Chapter 42, the measurements of the outer court. Chapter 43, the glory of God returns to the temple. The duties of the temple priest. The land for the temple priest, chapter 45. Most of the last part, from 40 to 48, it's all about the millennium, but primarily the temple itself. Now, Let's go back to and finish our last verse in Haggai, verse 9, where we read, uh, this temple will exist during the kingdom age. In verse 9, it says, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of, of hosts. And this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house is rather the latter glory of this house. Remember that God views the series of temples as one house, and he is saying that the latter glory of this house, which will be that of the millennial temple, will be greater than the former. It will even be greater than Solomon, and certainly greater than the temple that was being built then, Zerubbabel's. So in verse 9, that was our last verse I would like to close this morning by looking at Second Peter. We were there a little while ago talking about it. But what do we do with all this? So we've had a Bible study on judgment. Bible study of people scoffing that there was ever a flood. Talking about uh, the necessity of a temple. Why? Because that's where you worship the Lord. That's where you bring your offerings and your sacrifices. But 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Paul says, don't you know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? The woman at the well had deep questions deep down inside. She was a Samaritan. They worshiped on Mount Gerizim. She said, I'm a Samaritan. I can't go to Jerusalem. And you say, that's the place to worship. And the Lord looks at her and he says, woman, the time is coming and now is where true worshipers 
will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Well, you mean there doesn't have to be any more offerings on Yom Kippur? No. Read Hebrews 10 real carefully. That offering was made on that Palm Sunday, the 14th of Nisan. And Hebrews over and over again uses this terminology. He died once for all. And if he died once for all, it never has to be repeated again. So therefore, no more going into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur for the sins of Israel because it's already been taken care of and it never has to be repeated again. Well, that's good news. Good place for an amen. You are the temple of God. First Corinthians chapter 3. And we're living in the days of Noah. I don't have to persuade you of that. Just look at the Middle East. Look what's happening. We have Russian boots on the ground, for Pete's sake, in Syria. And who's supplying it all and who's talking all the trash? Iran, which is ancient Persia. And the stage is set for, I think the next thing that's going to happen is Isaiah 17. And that is the destruction of Damascus. It's never been completely destroyed. But um, that's where the terrorists are headquartered. That's where Assad is. Who's propping him up? Putin. And uh, the, the rulers in Iran. And gang, we are living in the days of Noah. And what are we told to do? Watch. Uh, be ready. Be one of those vir- virgins that, that are ready. But if you're in Second Peter 3... Um, picking it up in verse 11, it talks about in the first, these verses, that people will willfully be scoffers, they'll willfully forget that God did destroy the earth once before, verse 7, but the heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by the same word, reserved for fire, until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. All right. If all of this is going to happen, we read verse 11, therefore. Now that we have this Bible study under our belt this morning, there's a therefore. What do we do with all this information? Paul says, or Peter says, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, like um, Haggai 2 says, once more, I'm going to shake the whole world. What manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for. That's the five wise virgins. They they had oil in their lap. They were born again Christians. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we look according to his promise for a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. Another therefore. Beloved, looking forward to these things. People say you're always thinking about you're so heavenly minded, you know, earthly good. Well, my Bible says just the opposite. Um, if you're risen with Christ, Colossians 3.1, if you're risen with Christ, then seek those things which are above. In other words, be heavenly minded says the same thing right here. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. What things? Going home to be with Jesus. That Bruce Carroll song. I just want to see your face, Lord. Just want to see you. 
I know your voice. I see your hand in my life. But I sure would like to see you face to face. That's an unbelievable thought. But as sure as you're sitting there, and as sure as I'm standing here, you're going to look right into the eyes of your Savior someday. And that's what he wants us to look forward to. Why? Well, all this other stuff is going to be dissolved. And I did a funeral yesterday, and I can tell you one thing for sure. Um, the young man that passed away took absolutely nothing with him. Fortunately, he knew the Lord. So he's rich. But when your body, when your spirit leaves your body, you leave it all, all behind. So Jesus says the rationale is, wherever your heart is, put your treasure there too. What's really important to you? Well, I can tell you by how you spend your money and, and how you spend your time. What, what's a priority in your life? We're told to examine ourselves like we did in communion this morning. So, all right, Lord, here it is, spotlight. <laughs> Take a look. What, what do you like? What don't you like? And as a result, therefore, is being diligent to be found in peace without spot. In other words, allow the Lord to continue to, to take the sandpaper and, and you know, smooth off the rough edges. And when you blow it, admit it, knowing that he'll forgive you. You think he's going to be surprised when you blow it? Oh, what a surprise he sinned. <laughs> no, he knows what you're going to do before you do it. And so he says when that happens, just come clean. Confess your faults. He's faithful and he's just to forgive you and cleanse you from some unrighteousness. No, all unrighteousness. And his mercies are new every single morning. And the best part about being God is he says, I will remember them no more. That's an attribute I wish I had. Because even though I know maybe a past sin 20 years ago that I committed is forgiven, and I know it is, I have an adversary who's called the slanderer who likes to sit on your shoulder and remind you, (laughs) you call yourself a Christian. Don't you remember what you did 20 years ago? How could you ever call yourself a Christian? Well, there's no condemnation, Romans 8.1, in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I know what to do. I don't do it. And I know what I should be, and I know what I shouldn't be doing, and I'm doing that, oh wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this flesh? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ it's been done. Then we have another therefore. Therefore, there's no condemnation. When the devil starts whispering in your ear and tells you what a sinner you are, tell him to take a hike, just like the Lord did when he was messing with Peter. The devil was whispering in Peter's ear, and the Lord turned around and looked at Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. So who was behind all that? The devil. And so you have the same authority as a, as a believer because my Bible says, Greater is he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he who is in the world. And you have every right and every authority to take authority over anything that isn't angelic and holy. I'm talking about the demonic realm here. And you can tell them right where to go, literally. All right. And account, verse 16, that the long-suffering of our Lord of salvation, as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, 
and has been written to you. Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you as we're making our way through the minor prophets and we have these scriptures in Haggai. And we're grateful, Lord, that as you told your disciples, you called them friends and not servants because a master doesn't tell his servants all things. But you said, I've showed you all things that are to come. And Lord, we're grateful that we have the word of God, that you reveal everything in the greatest detail. And so, Lord, give us a hunger more for your word. And um, we just pray, we give you permission this morning uh, to examine us and to search us. Lord, I would especially pray for somebody who's never had their sins forgiven, who has not found grace like Noah. I pray that person today, if they hear a knocking on their heart, that they wouldn't harden their heart, but they would invite you in, ask for forgiveness of sins, turn from their wicked ways, and Lord, write their name in the book of heaven, in the book of life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.